You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. If you have a Bible and you haven't turned to Titus already, I'd encourage you to do that. It's good to see everybody this morning. And uh, we are two weeks into a short series here called One Church where we're taking some time to talk about things that are um, foundational for our church, but they're things that maybe we don't talk about regularly, and they're also things that different churches in the same town and in different countries land on different perspectives on some things. So these are things that have um, caused division at times in the church, but what we really want is for them to be uh, a point of unity for us here. doesn't mean that we're all going to think the same way on all the issues, but at least there's going to be common understanding and hopefully even some growth in our unity as we experience life together as a church. In the church, from the beginning, in the local church, wherever you go, there have always been things that people have disputed over, have uh, fought over. It's been there right from the beginning. And I was reading this week in 3 John, this short little epistle, where John writes to a church and he says this. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. How do you like to have your name in the Bible as someone who just like bucks against the authority? So John says, so if I come... I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. John's saying, here we're coming with authority as, in John's case, he's an apostle. And there's someone who is like bucking up against that. And it's causing friction and division. It's causing a problem. And John says, here's what I'm going to do about it. When I come, we're going to talk about it. We're going to bring it out in the open and we're going to talk about it. And so that's what we're doing in this series here. We're doing that preemptively though, okay? So we're not addressing issues to the church. We're not doing what John is doing. There's nobody to name here, okay? No names coming out today. But what we're doing is preemptively kind of talking about things that, again, we don't always talk a lot about, but they are, uh, in all reality, important to Citizens Church. And we want to open that discussion up and have a transparent relationship together. And so, this morning, we're looking at the idea of the order of the church, okay? And if you didn't catch last week's sermon, uh, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because each of them is kind of tied together, okay? Last week, we talked about orthodoxy, and this week we're talking about order. Super exciting topics, okay, that everybody's like just raring to hear about, but these are really important, okay? And the order that we're talking about is things that God puts in place for his people to be together, to be unified. And so in our passage this morning, we're looking at Titus 1 through 9, and the reason why Titus is such a good book for us we, we actually studied Titus, I don't know, it was like a year and a half ago or something. Uh, we went through the book in detail because it is from a church planter to a church planter. 
So Paul is writing to someone who is establishing churches, local churches, and he's saying, here are things that are really important for you to know as you establish that church. And that's why it's really good for us, because we're still technically in the category of a church plant. So we're still trying to like settle things in. We're still trying to bring people onto the same page. And so this morning we are looking at this principle of order. Now listen, I don't know what your life looks like, but we tend to really quickly bring complexity into our lives. We like to make ourselves busy and distracted. And that doesn't just happen on like a personal level. It also happens at a corporate or even like a a business level. Um, If you know companies like uh, Apple and Google and Tesla, they have kind of made themselves on this principle of being really focused and, and singularly driven by just a few things. They are able to take technologies that are like extremely complex, like an iPad or something, and make it really usable for us as people, lay people, or a car, although I've never owned a Tesla. But if you have a Tesla, you know, I've sat in one before. They make the experience of driving a car beautiful. They are able to focus the product, and that's what makes them so successful. I've read a number of stories about Apple and kind of its origin and And when Steve Jobs took over his company again in 2000, it was a company that was in like complete disarray, making all kinds of products, you know, modems and printers and, you know, the early versions like a PDA thing and computers. And Steve Jobs came in and basically cleaned house and said, we're doing like one or two things. That's it. We are focusing this company hardcore. And from then on, it's just been a slow, steady rise to being, I think, maybe the most valuable company in the world today. I'm not sure where the stock market is this week, okay? But, you know, that's kind of the road. Focus. And so this morning, I want to start by reading the first few verses again here in Titus where Paul clarifies for Titus, the church planter, and for the church, a unifying message, clarity around a unifying message. And it's this. He says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul says, Here it is, Titus, in the introduction to my letter to you. This is of central importance. And it is this unifying message that Christians have. And he breaks it into a few different parts. So let's look at them. The first part is here, he says, we have been given the, you see that in verse 1, he says, we have been given the knowledge of the truth. As Christians... We have been given the knowledge of the truth. And let me tell you, when Paul wrote this, wrote this in this letter, it was just a controversial statement then as it is today. To say today that you have the truth is for most people an arrogant statement, 
Maybe for some, it's a controversial statement. For maybe for some, it's a point of massive division. But here Paul is saying, we as believers have the truth, which comes to us from God. And that is something that we should be able to stand on. It's something that even Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, he said that he was the truth, that he had the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? And the Apostle Paul, when he stood before Festus near the end of Acts, he's giving his explanation of the gospel and the clarity of that truth. And Festus is like, Paul, you're going like crazy. Like, take it easy, man. Like, are you trying to convert me to this truth that you have? So all the way 2,000 years ago is a controversial statement, and it still is today for us to say that we have the truth. But look carefully here at, at what Paul adds to that. Because oftentimes we tend to think that that's just words, that this is just a message that we have. It is that, but it's not just that. Paul says, we have the knowledge of the truth which accords itself with godliness, which comes together with actually a life that is transformed. So that the, the truth that we have is not just some sort of apologetic that will tie someone up in a pretzel and we can say, aha, we got the truth and you don't. It's not just so that we can win some arguments with some people and say that we have the truth and they don't. It's actually we have the truth and as a result of that now, our lives are different. We live differently. People experience that truth through our changed lives. Have you ever had that happen before where you had something that you actually needed to change in your life, and maybe you even had the information to do it, but you didn't actually change your life. Now, I, I was reminded of a really simple example this week of how I didn't apply that for a while in my life. It was how I used to put on socks. I don't know how you put on socks, but I used to put on socks like grab them by the end and pull through. Any, anybody else like that? Maybe you don't want to admit it, okay? You're a pull-through person, right? And I remember Liz, my wife, was like, you're going to destroy your socks that way. And I was like, no. This has been working for me for many years, confident in this system. And then there was one time I was like sitting on the bed. I was going to put on a pair of socks. And I think, I think Liz was in the room even. And I did the old system. And boom, my foot went right through that sock. Just blew through it. And she probably didn't say anything, but she was like, there's your system at work, you know. And from then on, actually, I changed how I put my socks on, okay. I don't put my socks on like that anymore. It was a lesson learned. Paul's saying, we've been given the truth. He says, this is how you order you, the local church together. You have been given the knowledge of the truth, which should then lead to a transformation in your life. Godliness. But he goes on. He goes on to say, not only are Christians given truth, but we are also people who live with hope. In verse 2, he says, we have this Truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. We are God's people who live with a hope that is bigger than ourselves. Now, what does hope look like? If you would give your own answer, if you had to write like a 500-word essay on hope, 
what would you say in that essay? If you had to ask a neighbor, just a regular average Canadian neighbor, what is hope for you? Probably the answers that we would get would be like a million different answers, like 25 million different answers. But I think a, a theme that many of us would hear is, you know, this successful kind of life. The things that people put their hope in is, you know, being a beautiful person, okay? And then hopefully maybe like finding someone who is another beautiful person and either living together or getting married together and then having beautiful children. We're really focused on beauty, okay? <laughs> Lots of beauty going on. And then, you know, having the perfect job which pays a lot of money and then working for like maybe 20, 30, 40 years, and then at 55, 60, maybe 65, retiring, getting to travel the world and see different places, and coming home to our beautiful grandchildren that just love us and take care of us, and then eventually at 95, just going to bed on a March 12th night or something, and just, that's the end. It's over. Suddenly, we all kind of put our hope in that kind of a life. And yet, all of us know, because we've lived long enough, that there's just, just one little thing has to turn off in that scenario, and it can all come crumbling down. One little unexpected thing of some kind of unfulfilled whatever that is. One medical condition that comes into your life. One broken relationship that just keeps searing itself into your life over years and years and years. And hope comes crumbling down. Here Paul is saying, here's what you need to hang on to, Titus, and, and tell your local congregation. The order of your belief and understanding is that we are in the truth revealed to us from God. And that we are people who stand in hope. That that gives us hope for today through any circumstance that life brings to us, all the good and the difficult, all those things, but also even into eternity, even into eternity, well beyond us. And Paul says, hang on to that hope. Make it central for your people so that they keep that as central order in their lives. Because if not, they will be distracted, grow in complexity, and then hope in, in false things will take over, which will ultimately bring a lack of hope. And so we are to be called people of hope. So we are people who are in the knowledge of the truth, and we are also people of hope. And then lastly here in this opening section, he says that we are also people who have had manifested before us the word through the preaching. Now, if you were here Christmas Eve, uh, I said that we don't often hear the word manifest used. And it's not used that often, and so I kind of made a point of that. And ever since saying that, like two weeks ago, I've seen the word manifest everywhere, okay? It's just like all over the place. So I was wrong, okay? That was like misinformed in that regard. Because then this week I'm looking at this text again, I'm saying... There's that word. It keeps hunting me down. Manifest, okay? So what does that mean? Manifest, in this context, and in the biblical context here, it's meaning that it was made visible to us. 
It was made obvious. It was clear for us to see. So Paul is here saying that the word or the the message of the word, which is about Jesus, was made manifest to us. It was made visible. And there were literally people at the time of writing this letter who would have been witnesses or would have spoken to people who were direct witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. They would have seen him risen from the dead. And so Paul says, this amazing story, this manifestation of the word of God is brought to us then through the preaching of the word. And by the preaching, he's not just meaning me standing up here on stage. That's a part of it. He's actually meaning that we as God's people, those of us who are Christians here, would use our vocal cords and our mouths to actually tell the word, to proclaim the word, to tell people around us who we know and people who we work with and those who we interact with, that we would be those who would bear the message. We would call people to tell them about what Jesus has done for them. So we would, in the language here, he's, he talks about it through preaching, but he, we would tell that word, we would tell that good news. It would be something that would be a part of our lives. That's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to actually say those words to someone. I don't know when the last time it is that you've done that, but it's hard to do that. But God's people have been reminded of this fact over and over again, that we are called to be proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. We proclaim the truth that we have in Christ through words and through our deeds, through the transformed life and through the words that actually will bring transformation. So, Paul here is telling Titus, of first order, we are to understand essentially what the gospel is, that we are people who actually know where we've come from, we know where we're going, and we know what God wants us to do right now. That's who we are as people. And here's the reality is we forget that all the time. We forget that message all the time. So that's why it's a first order. That's why we regularly do things to remind ourselves of these very answers to the questions that we all long for, where we've come from, where we're going, and what God has for us. And so Paul says, this is how you need to order your local church around these very things so that those are clear. But then he goes on. Not only do we have a unifying message, but we have a unifying leadership. So how do we stay on mission? It's not always easy to do that, right? I I said before that uh, we love to bring in complexity. We love to make things more complicated for ourselves than we need to. And so God has given to us leadership within the church to continue the vision forward and to maintain that clarity. And it comes in a lot of different forms. But one of the forms here specifically that Titus is hearing about is the role of elder. Okay, let's look at these verses again. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, that's, that's just another word for elder, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, a lover of good, sorry, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here Paul is giving instruction on leaders in the church, specifically elders. And so he begins to describe a number of things about elders, and we're not going to be able to touch every single one of them, but I want to draw out four things here for us to know about elders. And the first is this, that they come from within. Okay, you can see there in verse 5 that Paul says, appoint elders in every town. So on Crete, this island, Titus is going around planting churches, and in every town where he plants a church, Paul says, in that town, appoint elders. So from within the community itself and within the local church community, Paul says, that's where you find your elders. You find them right from within the congregation. It is a place where the elder is known among the people. And this is really important, okay? So it's not just, you know, that someone can't be from, like, a town right next door over, okay? So if you're an elder from, uh, or if you're a person from Drayton, oh, sorry, you come to Citizens, you can't ever be an elder here, okay? There's no, like, geographical dividing line here between different townships or something like that. But there's a principle here, a principle that's really important. Paul is saying, those who are elders in your congregation should be from within the group because they are meant to be known by the congregation, a congregation, a, a, a local church, is an intimate space. It's a space where we are called to be known by each other. Next week, we're going to talk about this idea of family and being committed to the idea of family. Because in the local congregation, we are bearing ourselves to, to a greater degree than we would in other spaces in our society. And so Paul says, those who are going to be your leaders are people who are in that context, are in that intimate context. They're not just coming from somewhere else and doing like leadership stuff and then, you know, exiting out. They're not just going to parachute in and leave out. They're actually from there. People know them. They are known by the congregation. And this is really important so that that vision of intimacy is not just done by the local people and not the leaders, but it's done by everybody. So Paul says, appoint elders from within. They need to be a part of this intimate space. But secondly, he also says that elders work in plurality. So just before the every town phrase there, he says, appoint elders. He says that in the plural. So he says, appoint elders. I think I was looking this week throughout the New Testament. I think everywhere where you see elders mentioned and all the different stories and all the different letters that are written, it is almost 
always referred to in the plural. This is a, a group of elders that are working together. And so I don't know if you've experienced that before. If you've been here, you've been experiencing it. But there's a lot of different ways that churches are organized. Some are organized around just a pastor. One person runs the show. They do it all. Others have a pastor and maybe like a leadership team. And those work together. Or maybe there's some who have a pastor with deacons. And those work together. There's all kinds of different ways of doing it. If you look around at the different churches. But one thing that we see in the New Testament when it talks about leadership and it talks about elders working for the church, you always see it in the plural. It is a group of people working together. Dan Walls, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, he says, the argument, basically around plurality of leadership, the argument from Scripture is in fact so strong that most commentators today just assume it. So nobody's even really arguing about whether or not this is like a thing. They're just like, it's a thing. Elders work in plurality. So what does that mean then? Working in plurality just means a few things. One, it means that things take longer. Things just take longer. If it's like one person, you're just like boom, boom, make a decision, move on, move on, boom, done. But in a plurality, things take longer. In a plurality, there's also the potential for broader views. And I put that potential in there because it's not guaranteed. There's a potential for broader views because, I mean, to have even one other person at a decision-making table broadens the view. But to have three, to have four, to have ten broadens that view. And it also gives greater potential, not just for opinions, but for increased wisdom at the decision-making. Our experience in general that comes to the decision-making table. And so in Scripture, we see here that elders are called to be a plurality. They work together as a team to lead the mission and the vision of the church. Okay, number three, elders meet qualifications. And you can see in the text there that there was a whole bunch of qualifications in there. I just want to bring out a couple, okay? And, and probably the ones that are maybe the most uh, difficult and bring some controversy. And the first one is this. You can see in verse Six, it says that elder, an elder is the husband of one wife. Or in the Greek it says a one-woman man. That's essentially what it's called. So elders are qualified men. And let me park here for a minute because this is one that can be difficult for people to uh, accept. This is something that brings different perspectives and interpretations into church. It's brought division in different churches. So let me just pause here on this one and take a little bit more time on it, okay? The first thing is this. God has called men and women to work together for the gospel. This is, this is the foundation of the scriptures and what God is doing. He calls men and women who are both heirs and both identified by Christ to work for him in his mission. And the future, eternity, is an eternity filled with men and women worshiping Jesus together. That, that's a summary statement of what God is doing. Yet within that, even here, God is calling for men to be in the role of elders to be qualified for that. There's a to that. 
Now, this is something that a lot of churches, honestly, would rather not talk about, would rather avoid. Most people would not want to be up here on the stage right now preaching this sermon. They'd just be like, let's pretend it doesn't exist. Let's just move along and do everything else but talk about this. But we're doing what John would do, right, in 3 John. We're talking about it, okay? We're putting it out here. And the reason why we're pausing on this one specifically is because this, depending on your experience, depending on your background, and depending even on what you think and believe right now, can be a source of great pain for you. This can be really difficult to kind of take in and process. Kathy Keller, who is an author and has written a short a booklet on this topic and who was on, on a track to be an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church till her mind was changed on this perspective. She has talked to men and women at her church context where her husband is the pastor and has talked a lot about this over the years. And she writes this. She says, when talking about this area, she says, one woman told me tearfully when she learned that Redeemer did not ordain women as elders or pastors, it was like finding out that your fiancé is a child molester. That's the, that's, that was what like the first inclination came to her. And so Kathy goes on to write this. She says, how does one talk pastorally and compassionately to 21st century people so that the notion of gender roles is presented not as an embarrassing antiquity, that the church is stuck with, but as a gift meant for our good? It's a great question. I don't know if we're going to be able to accomplish that here this morning, but here's what we do believe. When it comes to issues like this, and there's a whole host of other issues, okay? We're just talking about this one today, but there's a pile of other issues where people have strong feelings about them. We believe this, that we need to teach on these things at the church, so we don't want to hide behind them and pretend that they don't exist. We need to teach on them, but we also need to talk about them with each other. That's how we need to do this. Talk about them together. As a church family, we need to address these things in the context of family, even if that means we disagree. That's okay. We do that as family. We disagree on things, but we also need to have clarity as to what it is that we believe as a church. And so, even back in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis wrote about this topic, and even then he says, this is very unpopular. Okay, this was back in the 40s, and Lewis is like, I don't even like writing about this, but it's a super unpopular thing. But he wrote a small paper, a small essay on it called Priestesses in the Church. And in that essay, written in 1948, he writes this, which I think is kind of helpful for us. Hopefully it's helpful for you. He says this, The kind of equality which implies that the equals are interchangeable, like counters or identical machines, is among humans a legal fiction. It may be a useful legal fiction, but in church we turn our backs on fictions. One of the ends for which sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and the sensitive figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. With the church, 
We are farther in, for there we are dealing with male and female, not merely as facts, but of nature, facts of nature, but as the live and awful shadows of realities utterly beyond our control and largely beyond our direct knowledge. Okay, Lewis is writing in like 1940s English, which we're not used to. But Lewis is basically saying this, the world ebbs and flows with its perspective on things. It changes the way it views uh, sexuality and the way it views how much and how little people can be involved. We think that what we're living in today is the reality as it should be. But here's what's going to happen. In 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years, people are going to laugh at what we're doing today. And so we as God's people, Lewis is saying, are anchored to something deeper than just our cultural desires and our cultural time frame. He says, we are doing things that God has actually divine purpose in. And that is connected to our sexuality at times, our gender, but it's also connected to how we interact. And so his example is marriage, which society would see as maybe valuable, maybe not valuable, as, you know, it working this way or that way. He says marriage is actually a picture for us of the divine love that Christ has for his church. It's not just marriage. It's more than that. So when it comes to eldership in the church, Lewis is saying maybe God is actually doing something different here, different than what we're used to or even what we accept. Now, let me say this, to be fair, male eldership or any kind of eldership in the church, whether it's uh, egalitarian or complementarian, which is kind of the two titles of two big different perspectives, either one can lead to trouble in a congregation. We probably all can think of church leaders from either perspective or from no perspective at all who have abused authority. God does this amazing thing. He creates these wonderful things like a local church or like a family or like parenting. And then he allows us to actually live it out. And at times, we as people ruin exactly what God is providing. All the wonderful blessing that can come from these things God allows us to kind of tear it up and make a big mess of it. And that can happen in any church. And I can't promise you even that that can't happen in this church right here. In five years, in ten years. But for the grace of God, anything can happen in any gathering of God's local people. So this is why God calls qualified men. And that word is really important, qualified Okay, he's not just saying like all men are leaders and all women are not leaders. That's not what the scriptures are saying. They're saying there is really specific people who should be leaders of a local church. And he says those leaders are elders that meet a qualification. So if you look back at the text, we're not going to look at everyone, but you can see there is a list here of qualifications. And the same, a very similar list is in 1 Timothy, where Paul says, these are the qualifications that matter. And just to point one out, because it's repeated twice, he says there that they are above reproach. These elders are above reproach, which basically means they live out what the gospel is. They're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. No human is perfect. But they live out what the gospel is. They are consistently following Jesus. They are disciples of Jesus. And why is 
the character and the quality of these leaders so important? The reason is this, because we are drawn to do leadership in other ways. So remember, I just talked about Apple and Steve Jobs. Well, you know, the way that Steve Jobs was able to change that company was basically by coming in and at worst being a bully to people that he worked with and at best being like a super hard boss to work under. And basically he had to crack the whip on all of his employees and some people loved it and some people hated it, but this is how he got it done. And a lot of people would say, listen, that's how you get things done. If you can't handle the heat, get out of the pot or whatever the phrase is, okay? Just get out of it, okay? If you can't do it, if you can't work within that, go work for someone else. This is how we get stuff done, baby. Okay, that perspective, that's not how the church is led. That's not how we are called to lead people within the church. But it oh so easily seeps into the church. That's why Jesus, on multiple occasions, actually addresses this very thing. Because into the church will seep this mindset of, like, get stuff done. Hold on to power. Do whatever it takes to move the mission forward. So, in John chapter 13, and if you, well, it'll be up on the screen. But these verses, I'm going to read these verses because this is really important, okay, about this idea of being a qualified elder. Jesus speaks to us about what that leadership should look like. In John 13, he says this. It retells the story of the Last Supper. He says, During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And the story goes on that Peter says, I don't like this. I don't like what you're doing right now, Jesus. You're washing people's feet. Peter's like, you're God. You should be the most powerful. This is how it works in the world. You're the most powerful. You're the most important. You should lead from up there. And all of us should be like begging to serve you. And Jesus says, no, this is how you do it. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now listen, this is something for all of us to follow. But Jesus right here is speaking to these 12 men who would be the apostles, who would lead the church. They would be the start of it. They would be leading this vision. And Jesus says, here is how you lead them. You lead them through service. Another passage in Matthew chapter 20 where the sons of Zebedee come to Jesus and they're like, okay, Jesus, I think we can handle this. You're the top dog. My brother John's on the left and I'm on the, on the right. We can do, we'll be like a trio. We'll be like a new trinity. It's going to be sweet. be amazing. You like that idea, Jesus? And we can rule with you. We can have the power with you, Jesus. 
You can trust us. What does Jesus say to them? But Jesus called them to him and said, You know how the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus says, You're bringing that perspective in. That's how the world does leadership. Crack the whip. Get stuff done. Be in power. You're trying to bring that into God's mission. And Jesus says, It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. This is the calling for qualified elders to serve the congregation. And listen, you may be coming here and you maybe have never experienced that before. You've maybe never been in a context where you've actually been able to see this. And you look at these texts and maybe even in your mind there's scoffing at what is being written there. Like that is impossible That will never happen. And it will never be done perfectly. But this is actually the calling of God's people to serve each other in this way and also for qualified elders to serve in this way. So, elders are called to be servants of the church. We say, or I've said here a few times, elders are willing janitors. They willingly serve you, the congregation, for your good, so that you, men and women, can serve Christ in all the places where you go. Because not everything we do happens in this space right here. So, elders are from within. They work in plurality. They are qualified. And lastly, they are affirmed by the church. So, in the text here, in Titus and in First and Second Timothy the letters that are called the pastoral epistles. It doesn't like lay out for every local church how they should, you know, set themselves up. It doesn't say, you know, one day you'll be in Canada and you'll have to set up a charity. And so you got to set yourself up this way. Or you're going to have to write some bylaws to, you know, exist in this province of Ontario. So you should have these lines there. It doesn't go into that detail. But it does give us principles to hang on to. And one of the things that it allows us to see and to understand is that the things that are here, these lists of qualifications, are meant to be evidenced. There's no, like, test that an elder takes that, you know, they get 80% or 90% and they pass and they're in. The test is actually their life. And the congregation is meant to see these things in the life of the person and then affirm that that's actually a reality. So in Acts chapter 6, we won't, I won't have the verses up here, but in Acts chapter 6, there is a problem going on. And so the leaders of the church are trying to find a solution. And their idea is to bring deacons in to help to kind of share the load of the work so that nobody is left behind. And they list off these different names, Stephen being one of them that we're pretty familiar with. And they kind of give the idea to the congregation. And the congregation says that what the elders said, it pleased the whole congregation, it says. It pleased the whole congregation. Everybody was like, yeah, those people for deacons and that solution, that makes sense. It's affirmed by the congregation. And here as well, these qualities of the elder are meant to be affirmed by the congregation, that people 
sitting in the pews or, or serving one another can say that, yes, these qualifications are actually there. They are being met. So it actually allows the church to be involved in the process of leadership through this step of affirmation. Because listen, if you don't come through that door every week here, if you don't join missional family, if you don't give to the ministry of this church, guess what's going to happen? We close the doors. Like nobody's coming, then there is no citizens church. So you as the congregation are actually affirming the ministry of the church by coming and being a part of it. And that is really important. That means that everybody has a, a voice and a stake in what God is doing here. So God brings order to the local church through a unifying message and through unifying leaders. Just like last week, this sermon may have landed a number of different ways for you. And I said this last week, if you were here, you'll, this will sound familiar. For some of you, it might be like, yes, that totally makes sense. I agree with that. I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, 100%. I'm there. That check mark, whatever. Maybe someone else is more like, well, yeah, I, I agree with most of that, but there's some things in there that, man, I'm not sure if I land there. I see things differently. Um, and are we okay with that? And then there's maybe some over here that you're like, I don't agree with that at all. I, that's like, a, there's an X on my paper of what you just preached there. And that perspective doesn't land well with me. And maybe you're even thinking, this is kind of my last time in this building with these people. I'm heading out the door and that's it. Before you do that, okay, just deep breath, everyone. Before we kind of walk out and whatever our perspective is, we hope that this won't cause you just to up and leave and just walk away. The point of this series is not to bring unintentional division into Citizens Church. It's not to just bring up these things to provoke some rage in people. It's to be the beginning of a conversation, to, to talk and to learn together. And at times, to fully agree, and at other times, to agree even when there's some different, differing perspectives, and at other times, to take a, a really serious look at what you're committed to and where you're committed to. And so we hope that this little series will do that for you and that you'll find the, the pursuit here at Citizens not just to be a pursuit of truth, though we are doing that because we're called to do that, but also a pursuit that is in grace and love. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, a passage that most of us are so familiar with, we've heard it at weddings, but Paul is actually writing to a congregation that is in serious trouble. Like they are experiencing some massive division. There's some big time misunderstanding. And Paul says at that point in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, listen, you can have everything just straight in a line. You can think that everything in your church is just wonderful. You can think that everything in your life is wonderful, that you love everybody, that you, you know, you're doing all these good deeds. But Paul says, listen, if at the center of your being, the thing that holds you in place is not the love of Christ, then you've missed everything. So he says, the most important thing is love. And so we pray that 
whether this is your only time here or this is your home church, that the feeling and the knowledge that you have is that we are people who love each other and want the best for each other in this local church. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be together. Lord, I pray that you would teach each of us what it means to love one another and to be working together in unity for the gospel and for the name of Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I just wanted to say, too, that if, if you have questions or if you want to uh, talk about what we've talked about this week or if you uh, have some questions even from last week's sermon or if you go back and listen to it, please come talk to me or come talk to one of our elders. If you don't know who our elders are, you can go on our website. All their pictures are on there and you can find them. We are happy to talk about these things with you. Would you stand as we sing together?